Well, Andy said he wasn't feeling well, and I'm uh, just getting over the stomach bug, so welcome to Grace Bible Church. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully you don't catch anything. That's, that's my prayer for you this morning. Uh, have, you, have you ever had a, a moment in your life where you thought, if I, if I could just see a miracle, then I would, just, I, I would know that God is real? Have you ever thought, God, if you would just answer this prayer in this way, then I would know, and I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt anymore. I would have this confidence, and it would change everything. I, I would be all in. God, I'm just waiting for, for you to, to do this miracle or to, to answer this prayer, and, and if you would just do that, then you know, you know that would change everything for me. I, I would live for you. It would, it, it would totally change my perspective, I, and I, I just, I just want to know for sure. I just need to know that you're there. Have you ever, have you ever thought that? Have you ever prayed that? Maybe it's just me. When I was in college, I was a, a philosophy major, and I was reading all of these brilliant, brilliant thinkers. Um, guys like Foucault and Derrida and uh, Nietzsche and uh, Sartre, and I, I could go on. And, and the thing these guys all had in common was that, one, they were brilliant, but two, they, they really didn't think much of God. And so I had been a Christian for a long time, but suddenly I'm reading all of these, these brilliant minds and I found myself starting to have doubts and to, to struggle with my faith. And at the same time, I had all these friends in the philosophy department, and as you can imagine, it wasn't the bastion of Christianity. And so uh, they were atheists and agnostics, and we would have these arguments and these debates, and, and I usually lost, because I, I just wasn't as smart as they were. And, and so I found myself going, God, if you would just, like, why don't you just reveal yourself? Like, won't you just perform this miracle, and then, then I'll win a debate for once, and, and then, then I'll know for certain, and they'll know for certain. We can just be done with this whole, this whole charade. Have you ever thought that? Yeah, I thought that for a long time. And, and, and then I, I began to, to realize that evidence for God uh, answered prayers, miracles, that, that, actually, wasn't, that actually wasn't the issue. Because the more I looked around at life, I realized that my life was full of God's blessing. The more I looked around, I realized that the world was full of evidence for God. And in fact, I, I often think of G.K. Chesterton in one of his works when, when kind of posing this question, how to himself, how do I know that God exists? In a very Chesterton-like way, he says, where do I begin? He doesn't even really try to answer the question. He just says, look around. And, and the more I thought about it, the more I could relate to that. And I thought, yeah, I, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, look at the world around us. See, evidence isn't the problem. And I didn't need God to answer another prayer. I didn't need him to perform a miracle. I, I had had prayers answered. I had heard of miracles. The problem wasn't that I didn't have those things. What I realized is that what moves us from a place of of doubt and skepticism and, and indifference and that, that sense of distance from God, what moves us away from that space and into the very presence of God isn't more evidence. It's not that miracle that suddenly overwhelms us and we have no choice, but actually it's when we recognize with gratitude all that God has already done. That's what changes us. And what I realized is that the moments where I feel most connected to God, closest to God, where I sense the very presence of God in my life, 
are not with another answered prayer or not some miraculous sign, but when I stop and I thank him for all he's done. In this passage we're going to look at this morning, you can turn there, it's Luke 17. Sorry, I thought it was up there. You can turn to your Bibles, Luke 17. There's, there's pew Bibles in front of you if you want to grab one of those. Luke is going to share the story from Jesus' life where Jesus answers a prayer. And he answers it miraculously. It's, it's a miracle. But what Luke wants us to see isn't just the miracle. What he wants us to see is that it is possible to have a prayer answered. It is possible to see a miracle, to experience the miraculous work of God in your life and still miss God. That's what he wants us to see. So let's look at this. So Luke 17, we're going to start in verse 11. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Stop there. Because we need to understand a little bit of context. So, so Samaria in the time of Jesus, understand, was this, this region between two Jewish territories of Judea and Galilee. And it wasn't a politically recognized, it was just kind of an, an understood, okay? This is Samaria, this area here. And if you, if you go back into history, what you find is that when, the, when Israel was united under King David and King Solomon, but then it, it divided into the north and the southern kingdoms. And King Omri, in the northern kingdom, he made Samaria, the city of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. And then over time, fast forward many, many decades and centuries, Samaria, that region, just sort of became like shorthand for, for that whole area. It's just Samaria, okay? And what we don't really know from history, at least not clearly and, and with certainty, is, is somewhere along the line, um, or what we, we don't know is how, but what we know is that somewhere along the line, there develops this incredible hatred and animosity that runs so deep between the people of that region, the Samaritans and the Jews. And some scholars, they, they point back to Josephus and what he has to tell us about that. Josephus was the very famous, very influential Jewish historian. And, and according to Josephus, the, the backstory was that in around 720 BC, the Assyrians invaded and they, they, they took out, they exiled all of these Jews out of the northern kingdom. But they left some. And the ones they left, they were loyal to Assyria. Okay, these were the traitor Jews, if I can put it that way. And so here were these Jews who were left in the, in the country, and they were loyal to Assyria, and they intermarried with Assyrians, and they even began to adopt some of the cultural and cultural, religious and cultural um, practices of the Assyrians. And then the Jews, when they're released from Assyria and they come back into the country, they look at all of these people, and they say, you're no longer, you're no longer part of us. You're the Samaritans. Now, not all scholars agree with Josephus. Some people, some scholars will actually go all the way back almost to the Exodus. And so we don't know for certain, but, but what we do know is that by the time of Jesus, it was ugly. I mean, think about what I just described. What, it's, what we know is that they hated each other along racial, political, and religious lines. Does it get much worse than that? And so Jesus now, he is walking, and in one sense, he is literally towing the line as he walks along the border of Samaria and Galilee. And he's on his way to Jerusalem, where he will suffer and he will die for the sake of the world. 
And so verse 12, as he was going into a village, notice he's not in the village yet, but as he is going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. And they just stood at a distance and they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. So in that, in that day, in that time, what we think of as leprosy um, would have been included, but their, their definition for leprosy would have been much broader than ours. It would have included any sort of like serious skin ailment. And so if you came down with any type of an infection that covered your body or began to break out on your body, you would go to the priest and he would decide whether you were clean or unclean. And he would declare you, if you decided that he, you were a leper, he would declare you a leper, he would pronounce you unclean, and then according to the Old Testament law in Leviticus, you can just take my word for it, because I know you want to go check that out. In Leviticus, he would say, get out. You're, you're, you're cast out of the village. You're cast out of the city. You can't be part of healthy society. And according to Leviticus 13, it says that, that not only were they, they outcast, not only were they put out, they had to dress in such a way, and they had to wear their hair long and unkept so that they would be visually identifiable as lepers, so that everybody knew. And not only that, but in, just in case someone started to wander too closely to them, they had to cover their mouths if someone got too close and began to yell, unclean, unclean. Imagine that for a moment. That you have been ostracized, you are separated with no connection. There's no visiting hours from your family, your friends, your spouse, your kids. And not only that, but then if they begin to get too close to you, you have to self-identify as someone who is unclean. They cannot come near you. It's a terrible existence. And it was a death sentence. Social and physical. You died to the society before the disease ever killed you. And so here are these men, and they, they're waiting outside of this village because they hear that this guy, Jesus, he's worked miracles. He's coming that way. And so they stand out, and they wait, and they see him begin to approach. Before he gets too far past, they begin to yell out. But notice, they don't yell, unclean, unclean. No, they yell, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Please save us. And so these 10 men, they are sequestered, they are isolated. The only company they have is with other diseased persons and they cannot even bring themselves to go to Jesus. The best they can do is they can stand off at a distance and they can holler out and they can cry out and they just hope that Jesus hears them. They just hope that he listens. I find something incredibly haunting about that picture. Something tragic. That there are times that that we feel that we are too diseased to approach Jesus. Have you ever had those moments where you just thought, man, I know me and I don't want to be near me. 
And you think, Jesus, I can't, I can't approach Jesus. I can't, I can't come near to Jesus. And maybe it's your past. Maybe it's regrets that you live with. Maybe it's your present. Maybe it's ongoing things and you think, I, I can't go to Jesus. And the best that we can do is just sort of cry out and hope that he hears us, hope that he listens to us. And what I find so beautiful about this picture is that that's exactly what Jesus does. See, maybe what they should have done was they should have gone to Jesus. Maybe they should have had faith enough that they should have gone to Jesus and fallen before him and said, we know that we're not supposed to come to you, but, but, but we know that you can heal us, and so we're not going to let you get away. We're going to stand right here, right in front of you. We're going to hold on to you, and we're going to demand that you heal us. But that's not what they can, that's too much. It's too great a leap of faith. That's, this is all they can muster is simply to stand at a distance and cry out and pray, hope against hope that Jesus will hear them. It's interesting that, that in the same passage, right before this, Luke gives us this story. Right before he gives us this story, he includes this teaching from Jesus about a mustard seed. Do you remember that one? Look at verse 6. He says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. The problem for most of us is that we don't have the faith the size of a mustard seed. We're like these men. At best, we can stand at a distance and we hope against hope that Jesus will hear us if we just cry out. And what's beautiful is that he does. He doesn't scold them and say, you should have come over here. If you really believe that I could heal you, then you should come to me. He doesn't say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, what? I can't hear you, you're too far away. No, he sees what faith that they have just to call to him. And he responds with compassion. And love, because that's enough. Sometimes it's enough simply to cry at a distance. Sometimes God isn't waiting for us to get to him. He's just waiting for us to cry out. And so look at what Jesus says. Verse 14, when he saw them, he said, go, show yourselves to the priests. And when they went, they were cleansed. See, according to the Jewish law, a leper who was cured or healed or just got well, they couldn't just at that point say, well, I feel so much better. I'm going to go back into society. They, they had to go to the priest and they had to show themselves to the priest and say, look, I'm well. And the priest would look over them and then the priest, it was their job, they had the authority to declare that person to be clean and then allow them back into society. But notice the pattern here, they, they were supposed to be well and then show themselves to the priest, but, but Jesus, he says, go show yourselves to the priest. And you can imagine these guys, they're going, why? No, nothing's happened yet. But then they're, they're talking amongst themselves, it's like, well, I guess, like, what, what choice do we have? We might as well, we might as well go. I mean, what have we got to lose? Okay, Jesus, I'm not well, but I'm going to head that direction. I'm going to start going to see this priest. And then as they go, as they go, something happens. Right? When they went, they were cleansed. And as they go, they're transformed. And the skin begins to heal. This disease falls off of them. As they went, they were healed. You ever think, God, if you would just 
do this for me, then I'll go wherever you want. You ever think, God, if you would just give me this answer, if you would just solve this problem, if you would just take care of that, and then I will go. But these men, notice, it's a beautiful picture. As they went, Jesus answers their prayer. Can you imagine what it's like for these men after all these years? We can only assume how long they've been outcast, they've received this death sentence, and then as they're walking, life begins to change, and they begin to weep, and they begin to, to rejoice, crying with joy, because suddenly they're going to see their, their families again. They're going to see their friends again. They are no longer outcasts. They can come into society. They can have lives. Can you imagine the joy? This is a beautiful moment. This is exactly when Luke should end his story, isn't it? I mean, this is the dramatic, climactic ending, like cue the music and roll the credits. Look, these men are healed and they're going back. They're being reunited with their families. It's a beautiful scene, except that Luke doesn't do that. Luke doesn't end his story here. Because for Luke, the point of the story isn't the miracle. The miracle is just the setup to what he wants us to see. Verse 15. And one of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice, and he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Remember when you were a kid and you did something particularly stupid? And your mom or your dad would like pull you aside and be like, you should know better. Do you ever get that? I remember distinctly occasions where it was me and someone else, like a younger sibling, and for some reason I was supposed to know better, but they weren't. Did that ever happen to you? So suddenly, you should know better, you're grounded, you better luck next time. You know, I'm like, wait a minute, we both did this. So I hated that expression, you should know better, but that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, these men, they should know better. Now, we don't know from the context if they were all Jews or if they were Jews and Samaritans. It seems like from the implication here in the text that probably at least some of them were Jewish, but it doesn't matter. Jesus is saying, they should know better. They should have received this miracle as they were going. They should have experienced this miracle, and it should have occurred to them at some point that this guy, Jesus, had done this, and they should have come back to thank him. Now, w w wait a minute, though. Jesus didn't tell them to do that. He told them to run and show themselves to the priests, right? So, I mean, is that even fair? I mean, Jesus, in some ways, this is your fault. This is entrapment. You told them, go show yourselves to the priests, and now you're judging these guys, you're critiquing these guys, you're criticizing them, because they then didn't turn around and come back and thank you. Like, Jesus, that's not fair. You can't do that. But notice, the text doesn't say anything about not obeying Jesus. It never says that. It never says that the Samaritan didn't go see his priest. We don't know the timeline. We don't know how all this fleshed out. All we know is that one of them came back. All we know is that for the Samaritan, all we know is that for the Samaritan, obedience wasn't the sum total of his response. That for him, simply taking his miracle and running away 
wasn't enough. He wanted to know the miracle worker. And my son Gabriel is um, starting basketball for the first time. We've always played baseball, never played basketball. And, and so even leading up into the season, uh, we've watched some basketball on TV. But he, he came in and he started asking me all the rules of basketball. He said, okay, Dad, like how many steps can you take between dribbles and, and, and explain to me like what constitutes a foul and all these. He wants to understand the rules, which makes sense. If you're going to play basketball, you need to know the rules. And yet, any of us who have ever watched basketball or seen basketball knows that the game is not, the, the, the total of the game, the totality of the game isn't in the rules, that keeping the rules doesn't equate to winning. You can keep all the rules and lose badly. Ask the Warriors. Okay? And see, what, what Luke wants us to see right here is that there is a way of obeying Jesus and yet not following him. See, in the church, it is really easy for us to become really good at being good. It's, it's really easy for us to be very good at looking the part and, and keeping all the rules. And we look like we're obedient. And in one sense, we are be, we're doing exactly what we are supposed to do and yet completely miss on Jesus. In fact, some of you know this all too well because you've been trying to keep all the rules for years. And you keep keeping the rules and keeping the rules and keeping the rules. And you keep thinking that this is going to, you know, God feels distant, but this is going to bring God closer. If I just keep these rules and check these boxes and do all these right things, that's going to do it. That's going to change my relationship with God. That's going to bring me closer to him. And what Luke is saying here is that, listen, there is a way of obeying Jesus that has nothing to do with following him. See, these men, they obeyed Jesus. They did exactly what he told them to do. And they ran off and they went to show themselves to their priests. But what they should have done was they should have come back. See, they started off at a distance and they stayed at a distance. All except one. One who came back. The one that you'd least expect. The Samaritan. Verse 18 was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner. Jesus is like, it's this guy? This foreigner. So, so this word for foreigner, this was a, we, we don't see it, you can't see it in, in our English translation, but this was a culturally offensive word. This would have been insulting to anyone to be called a foreigner using this term. It's a derogatory expression, and, and where it's most famously found is in the, the temple in Jerusalem, still in existence back then. There was a wall that separated the court of Gentiles from the Jewish sanctuary. This is the same wall that the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians, being torn down figuratively because the Jews and the Gentiles are now one in Christ. But the literal wall, it had a, a sign on it, and it was a warning sign, and it said this, no foreigner is permitted inside the partition and wall around the temple. Whoever is caught and will have himself to blame, excuse, excuse me, whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. should totally put that on your fence. It's better than beware of dog, right? If you come in here, you have no one to blame but yours, for yourself for your death, okay? So it's the same word here for foreigner, it's a derogatory expression. It was insulting. It was saying, you're a non-Jew. You don't belong. You don't get to go in there. 
You're not one of the chosen people. You're not one of the righteous people. You're just kind of tagging along. You're a non-Jew. It was offensive. So why is Jesus using it here? Like, he's just that rude. Here comes the Samaritan. He's doing what, what he desires. He's this foreigner. Why, why does Jesus do that? Can I tell you? Because Jesus is sarcastic. Jesus enjoys mocking self-righteous bigots. He does. And if you don't believe me, read your Bible. Because Jesus, I know we have this kind of view of Jesus that he's kind of, you know, pansy and soft and kind. Read your Bible. Jesus does not suffer fools or self-righteous hypocrites lightly. And so Jesus, he knows what's being whispered in the crowd. It's one of them. Can you believe it's one of them? And so he mocks the mockers. He says, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, this guy, he doesn't deserve this. He's not a Jew. He's not one of the chosen people. He's inferior. He's not worthy. He's not righteous and all of the rest. And Jesus says, you have no idea. Think again. Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. I've always been more of an outsider than an insider. Pick a group. I like to think that that's more of my own choosing, but that's probably not true. But I will tell you this. When I was in high school, um, I, I, I decided that I didn't want to be in a clique. I just, I detested cliques. There, there's something about the idea of a group of people that's exclusive, that excludes other people that I just, I, I've never been able to stomach it. And so what I decided was that I was going to be mostly accepted into all of them. And, and I, I, I could do it. I, I would go around and I would go from, from lunch period to lunch period, um, every day of the week almost, and I would go from group to group to group, and I was mostly accepted, and I'd hang out with the jocks because I could do that thing, and then I could hang out with the, the, uh, the cool kids skater crowd because I'd kind of do that thing, and then I'd go hang out with the juggling club because, don't ask, that was a whole other thing, and then I could hang out with the math nerds, and then there was the, not to be confused, by the way, with the Lord of the Ring nerds, different, and then there's the Star Wars nerds, also different. There were a lot of nerds in my school, and then the the you know, land of social misfits and then just sort of the kind of normal people and I could hang out with all of them and I would go lunch to lunch to lunch. And it, it, in fact, they actually noticed. I'll never forget, one time I was sitting with some of the cooler kids and uh, one of my buddies, he looks over at me and he says, I, I, literally, he says, I know what you're doing. I said, okay, what's that? He said, I see you. You go from group to group to group and you, you never really belong to any of us but you're kind of fit in with all of us. And he said, what? Well, why do you do that? And he wasn't even angry. He was just kind of confused. And, and I don't remember what I said, but I, looking back, I, I think it was just because I, I just, I, I hated the idea of a clique. And what I found is that I still hate the idea of cliques. And I much prefer the idea of family. Because cliques, they, they might start with some friends who kind of have some things in common and and so they kind of begin to hang out. But then over time, with a click, it becomes more and more rigid, much more narrowly defined of who's in and who's out. And it becomes very clear of who's in and who's out, who's accepted and who's not. 
And you begin to exclude people and limit people and you're enough like us and you're not enough like us and all the rest. But see, a family, a family, it, it never shrinks. Not really. See, family only grows because you can never really be kicked out of a family. And it doesn't matter that you don't like Uncle Barry's politics or Cousin Sal's you know, hygiene or, or so-and-so's you know, uh, life choices or whatever. You can disagree with them you can be unhappy with all of that stuff, but you, you can't kick them out, not really. Your family. And one of the dangers that we have within churches is that it becomes frighteningly easy to function as a clique rather than as a family. And that the longer we're in church, oftentimes, sadly, the fewer people we think should be allowed in. And we have such a clear picture of who's in and who's out. It's these type of people and not these type of people. And we forget that Jesus came to save not the people who, according to our standard and our preference, are tasteful and proper and right and moral and all the rest of it, but that he came to save people that, from our perspective, were the least we would ever expect. And that praise God he doesn't use our standards to judge other people. Praise God that he isn't evaluating other people based on what we think is right and what, how we think people should live. Praise God that he doesn't pick us and choose us based on our performance because we don't even live up to our own standards. Praise God that he doesn't pick you because of your morals or because of your hygiene. He doesn't pick you for any of that. All that Jesus is looking for is for you to turn around and to know him just like the Samaritan. All he's looking for is for us to stop and to turn around and to acknowledge him as the Lord and the Savior of all because when you do that, he says, you are healed. There's nothing before that. When, when this Samaritan turns around, this is what he says to him. He doesn't say, oh man, you've done such a great job up to this point and because of that, you're healed. No, he says, I gave you a gift and you simply said thank you. That was it. You actually saw me. You didn't take the miracle and run. You didn't take the answer to prayer and run off. You came back. And he recognized not just the gift, but the giver. He said, you're healed. Not just your physical disease. No, 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 no. Now, it's not just your skin that's healed. It's your soul. You are made whole. You are now Something entirely new. You're a child of God. Not because he deserved it. Not because he checked all the right boxes, but because here was a man who wouldn't settle for a miracle when he wanted to know the miracle worker. Here was a man who refused to miss out on the one who answers prayer. Here's the one who, when he could have run away, he said, there's the God of the universe standing in front of him, and I will know him. I will know him. Recently, I was listening to a, an interview with a woman who's a, a well-known um, atheist a professor, very prolific writer, and is known, I mean, her writing is about how God and religion is terrible for the world, and, and um, just this delusions of God are behind all the evil and, uh, and she shared in this interview that part of her routine for the past 30 
or so years has been meditation in the morning. And that part of this routine of meditation is to express gratitude. And she made it very clear this was an essential part of her her meditative experience every morning was to express gratitude, to feel grateful. And when the interviewer said, to whom? She said, I I don't know. She said, not God. But the universe, maybe. She said, I don't really know. It doesn't matter. I just know that I have to feel grateful. And what I found so fascinating about this was that what she clearly understood, and she's absolutely right, is that our hearts are hardwired for gratitude. Our hearts are designed to be grateful. In fact, without gratitude, our souls don't function properly. Our our souls shrink and die without gratitude. If you don't have gratitude, then you are left with this this shallow sense of of entitlement and never-ending dissatisfaction. Nothing is ever good enough. Nothing will ever satisfy you. And you don't even have to believe in God to know that's true. But what I wanted to tell this woman, if only I could, I'm sure others have tried, is that the universe isn't listening. See, the universe can't hear you. And the universe doesn't care about you. And the universe didn't choose to give you life or, or choose to create you or choose to give you any of these things that you feel so grateful for and that you feel like you have to give thanks for. The universe is not listening. It cannot hear you. But there's someone who can. See, she's right. Your heart was created for gratitude. Your heart was created to feel grateful, but not to the impersonal universe, to the one who created it. The one who created you, the one who spoke all of creation into existence, who breathed life into your very lungs, the one who knows you better than you know yourself, the one who actually deserves thanks for all that you are and all that you have. And when we realize that and we come and we fall before Jesus like the Samaritan and we worship him, what we find is that he was what we were looking for all along. It wasn't actually miracles or even answered prayer. It wasn't all the gifts and all the blessings that we've prayed for and that he's given. What we were really after all along, it was him. All those things were just reflections. They were just shadows, all of it pointing to him. Every prayer you've prayed and every hope you've hoped and every dream you've dreamed, it was always him. What you've searched for your whole life, it's him you seek. Some of you, and I know because I've been there, you feel like God is distant He doesn't feel real in your life. He doesn't feel present and intimate in your life. And you feel, even in church, isolated and alone, and you wonder why those other people seem to have such a close relationship with God, and you're like, I don't get that. How do I get that? And maybe you've tried keeping all of the rules, and you just keep thinking, if I just 
check all these boxes or you just keep praying for some new answer. If God would just do this, then, then I'd feel close to him. When all you really need to do is to stop and to fall on your face and say thanks. Because what your heart is longing for, it's not another answered prayer. It's him. He's the one you seek. And unlike the universe, he's listening. We want to give you a little bit of time. We don't have much, but we have a little bit of time here to um, just pause and be reflective. And in your bulletins, you're going to find just one way to do that. You don't have to use this, but in your bulletins, there's a little insert there that says what I'm thankful for or I'm thankful for. And uh, we just want you to take the next two or three minutes, and if you've never done this before, right now, write to God a thank you note. And start with him. If you've never done it, simply thank God for who he is, for his grace in your life. And if you have some time after that, write down a few other things. And then here's what you're going to do. When you're done, you can do one of two things with it. Either take it home and share it with somebody. Share it with a spouse. Share it with a friend. Share it with your kids. Share it with your family. Or if you would like to share it with this family, we're going to have some guys with baskets in the back and as you leave, just drop it in the basket. You can make it anonymous, that's fine, but we just want to, um, just as an encouragement to one another, uh, we'll post those this week. And if you don't have an insert, if you, don't, if you need extras or if you need extra pencils, we've got a couple of people, so just raise your hand and uh, they'll bring one of those to you. So just take a few minutes and then I'll close us. Our benediction this morning comes from Colossians 3. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him and all God's people said, amen. Amen. You are dismissed. Go in peace.